Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 124, Futuristic Van Damage. Hello and welcome to episode 124 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. So last time around, I hung out in the late 80s and early 90s, looking at one of my passions at the time, which was baseball and trading cards. This time, I'm sticking with that particular era by looking at another thing that I was really into, the low-budget action film genre. There were a ton of these movies produced for both theater and video release during the time I was in late elementary and junior high school, and I think at that one point or another, my friends and I bought tickets for or rented every single one of them. And for this episode, I'm going to be looking at one of them, and that is 1989's Cyborg a post-apocalyptic sci-fi action flick directed by Albert Pune and starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. I'll be taking a look at the film's background, its plot, and then I'll give it my review. And I'll be doing it after this break, so stick around and come back for Cyborg. Yeah, you listening to this. My name is Mercy St. Clair, and I'm a trekker. Not a very glamorous job, but not according to some group called the Akadekagonagon Theater Works. And me. I think your adventures can be very glamorous. Oh, come off it, Molly. What I do is dirty, dangerous, and frustrating. Maybe. But I know I like hearing about what you do, and now other people can as well. That's where you come in. Yes, you. The one I started talking to before being interrupted. Head on over to 8TW.Ninja and look for my adventures as dramatized by the Akadekagonagon Theater Works and some guy named Ron Randall. Or else. Mercy! Ron Randall's Trekker, a new audio drama by the Akadekagonagon Theater Works, presented through the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. Coming summer 2021. Welcome to the world of the not-too-distant future. Get going! Go! A brutal gang is reshaping the world into their own vision of hell. And only one man can stop them. Jean-Claude Van Damme is leading the battle between good and evil. Take them out. As it's never been fought before. He's on a desperate mission to 
rescue a cyborg who holds the secret for saving the world. Why did you help me? I don't want to see you die. From the dust of destruction rises the warrior of a new age. Say goodbye, my friend. Jean-Claude Van Damme has become the first hero of the 21st century. Cyborg. Cyborg, as I said before the break, was directed by Albert Pune and stars Jean-Claude Van Damme, who at that point had begun to make a name for himself because of the success of the mixed martial arts movie Bloodsport. The movie has a bit of an interesting history, as it holds the distinction of being the final film released theatrically by Canon Films, the fabled independent studio run by Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus. There's a lot of the following detailed in the excellent documentary, Electric Boogaloo, the story of Canon Films. But basically, by the time this was released in 1989, Canon had gone bankrupt, and the film was actually put into production in the hopes of making back some of the money they had lost in their attempted big blockbuster movies that bombed in 1987, mainly Masters of the Universe and Superman IV, The Quest for Peace. In fact, Cyborg was made from the remains of two features that Canon greenlit before their money ran out, a live-action Spider-Man film and a sequel to Masters of the Universe. And because of the latter film, this film, Cyborg, would actually sometimes be listed as TV, in TV Guide as Masters of the Universe 2, The Cyborg. It is not a sequel to the Dolph Lundgren cult classic, but some people did think that because of the way that was labeled. Anyway, Pion was set to direct both of these abandoned projects. Um, when Canon declared bankruptcy, they had to give up the licensing rights that they had paid to both Marvel and Mattel. Uh, so that they could maybe recoup some of their loss. And in fact, according to the Wikipedia's page, he was actually going to film both Masters of the Universe 2 and Spider-Man simultaneously. But he wound up writing this when uh, Canon was like, yeah, we're not doing that. And originally he had Chuck Norris in mind to star as Gibson Rickenbacker, who is the name of the main character. But it was Menachem Golan who cast Van Damme. The film was shot for the very low cost of $500,000. It was shot entirely in Wilmington, North Carolina over the course of 23 days, with some sets made to look like a destroyed New York City as well as a destroyed Atlanta. That $500,000, by the way, was on top of the $2 million that Canon had already lost because of the props, sets, and costumes that had been created for those abandoned Masters of the Universe 2 and Spider-Man productions. Cyborg would grow on to gross $10.1 million. It was released in August of 1989. This made it the 88th highest grossing film of 1989, making about a million dollars less than Police Academy 6, but outgrossing the Meryl Streep Roseanne Barr comedy She Devil. The number one movie in 1989, of course, was Batman with $251 million in domestic gross. This movie, it got destroyed by critics, especially Roger Ebert, who put it on his worst of the year list, gave it one star, and noted that it was kind of unintentionally funny, saying, 
Few genres amuse me more than post-apocalyptic fantasies about Superman fighting for survival. Cyborg is one of the funniest examples of this category, which crosses Escape from New York with the Road Warrior but cheats on the budget. Now, to add to what Ebert said, Van Damme actually has said that he didn't like the film so much. Um, he was given like three different movies uh, by canon because those were in the pipeline already. Delta Force 2, American Ninja 3, and this, and he chose this, and he's like, you know, I really didn't like this this much. He actually ended up being sued by somebody over this. Uh, Jackson Rock Pinckney, who was one of the uh, villain pirate goons in the film, lost an eye during filming when Van Damme accidentally struck his eye with a prop knife. Pinckney won his lawsuit. He won a judgment of $450,000. And I should note that before I start the plot, that Van Damme himself, despite not liking the movie, was actually ultimately responsible for its final presentation. There's a director's cut that was longer than an hour, the hour and a half runtime that is on the copy that I have, but this director's cut tested horribly. Um, Van Damme then went to Golan and Globus, and he convinced the studio to give him the film to recut, and apparently he'd done this with Bloodsport as well and had been successful. So... That's what he did. Uh, he made sure that there was a lot more focus on the action, and this is the film that we have. A director's cut did surface in 2011 or so, as Pion had discovered lost footage for the film and had reassembled his film under its original working title, Slinger. He apparently had been giving it out on a print-on-demand basis through his website and actually has been, had been working on a prequel called Cyborg Rise of the Slingers, but that film never came to fruition. Pune was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2013, and while he has done at least one project since, the MS and a diagnosis of dementia has interfered with his being able to work. Cyborg does have two sequels. Um, there is 1993's Cyborg 2 and 1995's Cyborg 3, The Recycler. Uh, the latter was a direct-to-video flick starring Malcolm McDowell and head of the class is Christine Hodge. Um... The former is notable for the fact that uh, Angelina Jolie was the female lead alongside Elias Coteas. I think that was released in theaters, but I'm not entirely sure. I haven't seen either of those, nor have I seen Pune's own spinoff sequel from 1993 called Knights, which also has a female lead. So my, my focus and my and my attention really is on just this one film with Jean-Claude Van Damme. So let's go ahead and get into the plot. The plot is as follows. It's the 21st century and civilization lies in ruins. It's a plague known as the living death has overrun humanity. There is a team of scientists in Atlanta at the site of the former CDC and this is a place where some of the main remaining vestiges of civilization exist. That team has come close to developing a cure for the plague, but needs data that is only on computers in a lab in New York. Since communications between the cities has been completely shut down, someone has to physically go to New York to retrieve the data. They send a cyborg named Pearl Prophet, who is played by Dale Haddon. And she is a model and actress who appeared on the cover of the 1973 Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, by the way. And she is accompanied by Marshall Strat, who is played by Alex Daniels. 
They make it to New York and Pearl gets the data. This is all of this, by the way, is told in flashback at some point in the film. As the film actually opens with Pearl and Marshall beginning the journey back to Atlanta from New York, Marshall is killed by a gang of pirates, and they are led by Fender Tremolo, who is played by Vincent Klein. Pearl gets away with the help of Gibson Rickenbacker, and that's our star, Jean-Claude Van Damme. And if you're kind of giving a side-eye to some of these character names, yes, they are all named after various musical instrument companies. Fender, Rickenbacker, Gibson, Marshall, Pearl. So somebody was having fun with character names when they, when they wrote this. Gibson is what's called a slinger. These are people who live in the hollowed out cities of this world and they hire themselves out to get people out of the cities into safety. Over the course of the movie, Gibson has flashbacks and has recurring dreams to what is the greatest pain of his life. At one point as a slinger, he'd rescued three people. Um, and I believe it's a mother and two kids after the father had died. And he brought them to safety out in the countryside. After staying with them for a while, he and uh, the mother, Mary, they become lovers. Um, you know, he's very good with the kids, as she knows, et cetera, et cetera. However, Fender and his pirate crew found the house. They tied Mary Gibson and the, the, the son up with barbed wire, and they hung, hang him in a well. They put the barbed wire in the hand of the little girl of the family, whose name is Haley. Now, um, they're like basically saying, okay, hold on to this and they'll be okay. And being little, she was probably like, I want to say she was like seven or eight years old. She can't. Like, you know, you see an image of the barbed wire cutting through her hands and her screaming and the three of them falling into their presumed deaths in the well. Um, Mary and the, and the boy die. Gibson does not and he climbs out of the well. And this is his motivation through the movie because he wants revenge on Fender. Pearl is going to have Gibson accompany to her Atlanta because she analyzes him and realizes that she can trust him. But before that rescue and that journey can begin, Fender's gang gets the jump on them. Gibson's knocked out and Fender kidnaps Pearl. After he discovers why she's in New York, as well as the knowledge she's carrying, he understands how important that is and decides to take her to Atlanta. Not because he wants a cure in the world to be better, but because he thinks that if he's got the cure, he can control something. He can gain power by having it because it's what people want. He essentially basically says, I can become a god you know, in that classic villain way. Gibson, by the way, um, is rescued or woken up by a girl named Nady, whose family has been killed by the plague. Knowing that he is after Fender and Pearl might have information that will help with a cure for the plague, Nady wants to go with him because she wants to make sure the plague's cure reaches Atlanta. The two of them decide to trek down south while Fender and his gang commandeer a ship. They eventually catch up with one another near Charleston, South Carolina in a hollowed out warehouse type of building. Gibson kills a number of Fender's pirate crew, but he is eventually overtaken in discovering that and discovers that not only is Haley, the little girl from his past, still alive, but she's one of Fender's pirates and possibly his lover. Haley, by the way, at this point in the present day of the movie, is easily, let's say for the sake of things, she's 18. So there's a good decade at least between the flashback and now. But... 
it is probably a very uh, disgusting sort of um, Deathstroke Terra Markov situation. But Fender, Fender being a good villain, Fender is not a villain you're rooting for. Fender is the type of villain you want to die, even though he's a cool-looking villain. So this just makes him even worse. So Gibson gets away at that point, um, and he's about to take Pearl with him, but Pearl says that she's not going to go with him. She says that actually there's an advantage of her going to Atlanta with Fender. Fender's stronger than Gibson. She doesn't think Gibson's going to make it, and she knows that the people she's going to in Atlanta have the capability to take out Fender's gang. That remains to be seen, but she heads with Fender's gang to Atlanta while Gibson picks up the unconscious Nady who had been knocked out in the, in the fight and runs uh, away from the gang with a couple of those guys in pursuit. What follows that is a long chase scene and a fight in the sewers beneath the building. And then on a big fight on a beach and in marshland where Gibson and Nady kill a number of Fender's other pirates, but Gibson is eventually taken down and crucified by Fender on the mast of a dead ship. It's here where Haley gets a good look at him for the first time and realizes who he is, but she has to follow Fender. Gibson f- experiences the same exact flashback, like they just copy and paste the scene into this flashback, so we get stuff we've already seen while he's hanging there, and uh, and then also a little bit more the the you know how he got out of the you know a little bit more of of the execution and how he got out of the well. This um, this gives him gets him angry, and he starts kicking at the ship's mask until the rotten wood breaks and he lands on the beach. However, he's on his back and he can't get himself free of his restraints because they have shot arrows through his palms. Nady, who prior to Gibson's crucifixion had been knocked unconscious way off in the marsh, finally finds him and comes to his rescue. They clean up and they head to Atlanta. On the outskirts of the city, Gibson and Nady confront Fender's crew. All the pirates are killed, and then Gibson and Fender face off. The fight is long, and while Gibson is knocked down, Nady tries to kill Fender, but he kills her instead. At one point, Gibson is in a hollowed-out car, and Fender is slamming his head with the door. Haley yells for him to stop, which causes Fender to put two and two together and realizes who Gibson is. He then attempts to kiss Haley, this sort of like, hey, this is the girl, like, rub it in in Gibson's face, but... Haley refuses him, buying Gibson enough time to get up. He eventually stabs Fender in the chest, killing him. He confirms that Nady is dead and has a tearful reunion with Haley. But Fender is not dead. Come on, you've seen these movies, you knew he wouldn't be. And the fight begins anew. They eventually wind up in a shed, and Gibson eventually kills Fender by impaling him on a meat hook. Successful, Gibson and Haley take Pearl to the scientists in Atlanta. Pearl suggests that Gibson stay with them, but he insists that the outside world needs him, and he and Haley walk away. We close with Pearl saying that maybe men like Gibson are the real cure that humanity needs. Now, my personal story with this movie is that it's one of a good dozen I watched in regular rotation when I was in junior high school. I did not see it in the theater, and I didn't discover it until my dad found it on the shelf of Sable's Video Empire and then rented it. He'd later take me to see Kickboxer. That was my first in-theater Van Damme film. 
Um, and my dad, my dad, my friend Tom, and I really would go to a number of these movies with him when we were in junior high school. Um, a few of the Seagal movies, a couple of the Van Damme movies. And uh, Tom and I would rent like all these things all the time. So we rented Cyborg at least a few times. And it was at the time my favorite of the Van Damme films that were at least the ones that were made during that like early 90s heyday he had. I would rent it. It was hard to find for purchase until sometime, oh, 96, 97. I was in college when MGM Home Video released it for purchase as one of their like movie night collection Um VHS tapes. And that basically means that like, you know, they would do this, they would package movies that were kind of like, you know, second rate like this into and, and put a little label on it. And they would be the discount flicks that you would find for maybe $5.99 or $9.99 at Suncoast or Saturday matinee in the mall in, in the late 90s. So I, I eventually did get my copy of this in the late 90s after already owning Bloodsport, Double Impact, and Lionheart. Um, never had Kickboxer and never had Time Cop. I think I had Hard Target as well, if, um, if I'm remembering these things correctly. Uh, only a few of them have uh, survived either my parents' house or my house, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, into my, my thoughts on the movie. It's, look, I'm not going to pretend this is a good movie. Um, Hyun's clearly doing a pastiche of Mad Max, The Terminator, Escape from New York, and a number of other sci-fi action flicks of the day. In fact, the plot is very paint-by-numbers. You know, it's one that really only exists as something to slow the film down between fight scenes, right? So it's not upper tier by any of the stretch of the imagination. Then again, neither was Van Damme, at least at this point. The 1980s action genre is defined by the megastars that it established and whom would have huge box office hits and bombs in the late 80s, early 90s. Arnie and Sly, top tier. Bruce Willis probably as well uh, because of Die Hard and because he was their partner in the Planet Hollywood franchise. Shit, that's an episode I could do. Theme restaurants. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, 1989, Willis was on the rise. He was just getting huge because I believe Die Hard was 88. So Die Hard 2 would be coming out soon, Hudson Hawk, and then you get The Last Boy Scout, um, you know, and and he was, uh, you know, A-list celebrity because of his marriage to Demi Moore and stuff like that. But when you go to the B-level of the action star from the 80s and 90s, you have Chuck Norris, Steven Seagal, and Jean-Claude Van Damme. And by 1989, Chuck Norris had peaked. He was really on his way down. Braddock, Missing in Action 3, was a bit of a dud. It, guys, it's really not a good movie. Delta Force 2, which came out, I think, a little later than this, didn't really do much. And while I'm sure that there were a number of my late fellow Gen Xers and, early, and the early millennials who have a fondness for sidekicks with Jonathan Brandis, I don't think that movie did particularly well either. I think it's safe to say that Walker, Texas Ranger, which started in 1983, really was kind of the reinvention of Chuck Norris uh, and then saved his career from, you know, B-movie obscurity or C-movie obscurity. So then you're left with Seagal and Van Damme. And Seagal, well, he and Van Damme were neck and neck through most of the early 90s. 
But as much as I like Under Siege, Seagal's being a massive asshole shines through in every single piece of scenery he chews up and shits out in his films. Now, Van Damme has his ego. He's had his personal and professional issues. But out of those three B-level action stars, he really was the one that had the most appeal to American audiences. He's very good looking. He's got a sexy accent. He can do movie martial arts very well, especially martial arts poses. Yeah, I know he was a professional kickboxer at one point, but I can't tell you if he was any good. I mean, I know he has a good record, but you know, I'm I'm not I'm not uh, an expert on martial arts. <laughs> so I don't even know if his skills on screen were realistic, but I do know that it all looked cool. You know, he could do that split uh, do a really high kick. He could do that super kick thing, you know, where he twirled around and kicked his opponent as a finishing move. In fact, he uses that as like a finishing move in some of his movies, and it makes for some great shots. And yeah, I used to try to imitate the moves. No, I never succeeded. Yes, I probably look like a dumbass doing it. Anyway, Van Damme slides into that vacancy that Norris left which is appropriate considering Pune wanted Norris for this film. And he carries it really well. Now, what helps is that he has very little dialogue in Cyborg. Yeah, Bloodsport had preceded this and Van Damme did have lines in the movie, but this entire film probably has more grunts and screams than spoken lines. Funny enough, that's why it works. I kind of imagine that directing Van Damme at this point was like directing Arnold in Conan the Barbarian. Okay, pose with your shirt off, good. Look intense, excellent. Do a few karate moves, awesome. Pose some more, okay, okay, okay. Now, now I'm gonna hit someone, outstanding, cut! Despite my starky tone there, that's what makes Cyborg work and really entertaining. Pune knew exactly who he was working with and what he was working with. A Belgian guy who could kind of sort of act as his hero. A bunch of people from the American Gladiators touring company as his villains. You don't write snappy dialogue like the end of Commando for the big fight for people like this. You just have them say... Now, it is kind of funny. It's kind of funny to watch it, but there, and, and it's like, really, you couldn't write dialogue. But at the same time, if I think about it, there might be like an in-movie or in-universe reason for it. Oh, yeah. And, and okay, not kind of. I thought this through. <laughs> All right, so hear me out, because it actually makes sense. So this is a future where the world has been completely decimated by a plague. People are struggling to survive. Uh, while there are people in this movie who do actually talk for more than a few syllables, the world is ruled by the brutal, and that brutality speaks so loudly that words are unnecessary. So in the final fight in Atlanta, it's just all this raw, animal, brutal power of two people going at each other. All right, it's also two ultra-masculine, muscle-bound dudes going at each other. But really, I can't imagine that this is a world that verbalizes a lot, you know? I mean, the environment speaks for them. I told you I thought it through. I think uh, our director did as well, because for a movie which he was given only $500,000 for, he essentially looked around at what was left after Cannon burned through that two mil developing Spider-Man and Masters 2, and he was like, all right, I'm going to make do with what I can. That's why most of the fights take place on the beach, or in various hollowed out buildings, and on rubbled strewn street sets. 
I can't imagine it was hard to scout for or expensive to shoot in an abandoned warehouse. Plus, to the credit of Pune and whomever helped choreograph Van Damme's fights, those action sequences are really well done. Yeah, it's a lot of punching and kicking, but there's a lot of really good knife fighting. Very little use of firearms. In fact, not many people, if any people, are walking around with commando-level armament. Gibson carries a gun that looks kind of like the gun that Jesse Ventura has in Predator, but it fires only one bullet at a time. From what I read, it actually was a paintball gun they redressed for the film. I can imagine that with $500,000 to use, they didn't have access to Schwarzenegger or Stallone-level guns and ammo, but again, in-universe, it wouldn't work. This post-apocalyptic world is lived in. In other words, it's been a while since society collapsed. And I can only imagine that, A, companies aren't manufacturing automatic weapons and the ammunition for them anymore, and B... If they're not manufacturing the ammunition, especially, a lot of those Uzi clips, they've been used up, right? So knives, knives can be homemade. Trust me, my father-in-law watches a lot of knife-making videos on YouTube. And, you know, there's fights in the beginning of the movie, but the, really the second half of the movie, which is really like one big long fight and chase scene interrupted with a couple of like, you know, moments of pathos, it's all really well done. Uh, the, the abandoned building fight in Charleston, you know, we've got Gibson and, and Nady and, 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 you know, they, she gets captured. He takes out a number of muscle bound pirates in various ways. He's got the Rosa Kleb knife shoe, which looks really friggin' awesome when he kicks it across a guy's throat. But in this whole thing, he then like gets completely overwhelmed because Fender's gangs like two dozen people. So like, you know, there's, in fact, there's a scene where like he gets, you know, he gets knocked around and taken out. And then you see like all the other people of the gang, you're like, oh, wow, there's a big gang of people. So he can't take like everybody out. Not only that, Gibson doesn't just get the effort-loving crap kicked out of him at various points. You see him get tired and it's not something that you're used to seeing from the larger than life action heroes of the day, you know? You know, maybe uh, John McLean and Die Hard, but, you know, Arnie and all that, you know, it's it's like, they're like machines and they keep going through these things. And when he's tired and beat up, the villains keep coming at him. You know, in fact, when Pearl tells Gibson that she'd rather stick with Fender because, yeah, Gibson's a hero, she knows he's not going to make it. it. It makes total sense. And, um, you know, that backstory they put in, which, yeah, they flash back to a little too much in that, like, you know, they have to fill out time in the movie or something for it. But um, that backstory gives us that motivation as to why he keeps going after Fender. Like, why doesn't he just give up here? And I and I do have to point out, like, there's, again, just like, I'm, as, I, as I talk about this, I, I, met, I noticed, I remember a couple of really, really good fight scenes, one in a marsh, and the sewer one is pretty cool because there's a scene where one of those big hulking pirate guys is walking through the sewers looking for him. And Van Damme is doing the split across the top of the sewer pipe and um, has the knife like pointed down at him. And the guy looks up and you don't see him come down on the guy. You just hear the scream. It's a really, really cool scene. I really, really like that. And then, and again, just the, the fights themselves, they, they look, they look Hollywood and choreographed, but at the same time, you feel kind of a real impact to them. I, I just really, really enjoyed the fight scenes. 
Now, talk about some of the other characters here. Uh, Pearl, Dale Haddon. Now, she does a serviceable job. She she knows that she's the plot's MacGuffin. She's playing someone who is half a robot. At one point, they give her backstory in that she was an actual human woman who volunteered to be turned into a cyborg. And there's some really bad, like, makeup and prop look of the cyborg there. But, um, you know... Again, it's a low-budget movie. You kind of excuse these things. And she can act logical and not have to be the damsel in distress. You know, Haley Haley has two or three lines in the movie. They're simple-sounding, something that speaks to the lack of verbal communication I was talking about earlier. And also, she was a little kid when Fender kidnapped her. I can't imagine she got much of an actual formal education among the pirates. Mary, uh, who is played by Terry Batson, has all of three or four lines in the film, and she's just there to be in Gibson's memories as the woman he fell in love with and then watched die. Uh, a little trivia item, by the way, here is that Batson's dialogue is all dubbed over, so she's not speaking the lines in the final film. Somebody dubbed her voice, dubbed, dubbed their voice over hers, and she actually didn't know this until she took her family to see the film in the theater. Uh, in fact, a lot of the dialogue in this film, this is this it's off-putting at first and you just kind of get used to it. Um, it. It sounds like it was badly dubbed over. But again, this was made for $500,000. <laughs> the standout female character in the film is Nadie, the girl who becomes the Robin to Gibson's Batman. She's a scrappy fighter and holds her own in a number of fight scenes. She's played by Deborah Richter, whose pr- credits prior to Cyborg are mostly television roles, although she does play Candy in the 1980 David Naughton, Michael J. Fox cult classic Midnight Madness. And I really liked her, and I really liked her character. She starts off by just sticking with Gibson because they both kind of have a similar mission, but then they not only become loyal to one another, but they avoid the lover's trope. In fact, there's a really good scene where they are camping for the night on the beach, and she actually takes her top off as a way to like offer herself up to him. Because I imagine that's something she's used to doing. And he refuses her. Yeah, we get a boob shot. We actually also get a butt shot of her She uh, when they reach the beach and she runs into the water to kind of clean herself off. And if you go to the IMDb page for Cyborg, it's one of the first images in the images of the movie thing that's like right on the page. So there you go. You get to see Deborah Richter's ass. But that whole scene with him refusing her is actually a nice touch. It gives a little bit of depth to Gibson. He's someone who probably can't think of loving anyone else after what he's been through. And it allows her to realize that she doesn't have to do that. Her death bummed me out too. Um, She's not a woman in a refrigerator. You know, this is the final fight. She is essentially collateral damage in the final fight. But it's another statement about the brutality of it all. And I do wish she would have been in the final scene. Like that, that after getting rid of Fender, like him... Nadie and Haley had become like a slinger team or something. That would have set up a really cool like sequel idea or further adventures idea or something. But anyway, the final fight. Let's, let's, let's look at that because it takes place after everyone's crossed into Atlanta. It's in the rain because, of course, it's in the rain. And Vincent Klein as Fender. Um, and he was really didn't have much acting experience. He was a professional surfer out of Hawaii, like one of the, one of the more premier professional surfers at the time. Anyway, he's, he's a really imposing big guy, and he's perfectly cast because all he's there to do is to be the typical Van Damme villain. 
Van Damme villains in a lot of his first few movies don't do much except stand there and look menacing and be enormous. Plus, they have Klein wear these freaky blue contact lenses under the Terminator-style sunglasses and the ch- and, uh, that he's wearing. And he's also got like chain mail over post-apocalyptic clothing, which were bits and pieces of a costume from Masters of the Universe. Um, Blade, I think the name of the character was, or something, the Blade guy with the patch. So you got this guy, this imposing Terminator-esque villain, and the fight, the fight just goes on and on and on. You have Gibson killing the henchman. You have Nady fighting a woman in an abandoned bar that's just like, they're throwing punches. They're throwing furniture at each other. They're throwing each other across the bar. It's really, really good. And then you get the final showdown. Fender takes off his chainmail, bare-chested, and they just stare at each other. And really, it take, it's like they're staring at each other for like what seems forever. And, and it's like a totally dumb action movie scene. But at that point in the film, like I'm almost an hour and a half into this and I'm like, let's do this. I'm all in on the fight scenes. You know, I, I put any pretense out the window that this was a good movie. I just want to see these two beat the ever-loving shit out of each other. And really, I was getting hyped. Yeah, no, it, it's not the realistic type of fight. It's not Roddy Piper and Keith David from... Um, uh, what's it called? Uh, they live, but damn, it's just exactly what I wanted. You've got, including that jump scare that he's not dead moment. Um, you know, before Gibson and Fender wind up in a shed and the whole time, like you don't see the meat hook that he gets impaled on, but you see chains. I'm like, and I keep thinking, I'm like, those chains, like they keep hitting each other in the shed and you see the chains, you see the chains. And I'm like, those chains are going to come into somebody's death at one point. Either uh, Fender's going to try to choke Gibson with them or Gibson's going to choke Fender with them. And then all of a sudden, like you see him kick him into the thing and you're like, oh, there was a meat hook there. And he like, the, his back is impaled on the meat hook and he's just like hanging there. And that last shot, Gibson leaves the shed and you see Fender hanging on the wall off the ground with the meat hook in his back. It's, it's a really good shot. It feels satisfying that like, yeah, man, he, he went toe to toe with this guy for like forever, you know, just like, and, and finally beat the guy and the ending with him essentially realizing like they need me out there as opposed to, you know, I can be safe with all of you is a really good one. It, it, it is this sort of, completion of this reluctant hero's journey, et cetera, this sense of mission. And uh, he walks off with with Haley. Like I said, I wish it would have been him, Haley, and Nady, but, you know, I still thought it was a satisfying ending. And you can tell because I just spent much of this episode gushing over the film. It, it's just what I wanted out of it, you know? And I think I, think I liked it... Um, so much back then and and I like it now because it's one of those few early Van Damme movies that has a little bit more of a story than usual because let's face it you've got Bloodsport Kickboxer and Lionheart and they're really entertaining but they're basically the same movie and if you go into thinking that this movie Cyborg is going to be a dumb low budget violence fest and you put away any expectations that it has to have meaning or be innovative or send a message or whatever we put on movies these days you will have a lot of fun Now, Cyborg's on Amazon Prime. 
or it was when I when I uh, when I went to watch this. Although I will tell you that I did not watch this on Amazon Prime, so I don't know the quality of the transfer because I watched my VHS copy because. Of course, I I had to watch this on my VHS copy, you know. I mean, I wouldn't have it any other way if I if I could. Um, it does rotate through streaming services here and there. Before I finish up, I have one other thing, and this is really interesting. This was uh, this was a comic book at one point. Now, this is it's 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 something I found in a. I've had this for a long time. I think I got it out of a. I don't think I bought it off of a rack. I think I got it out of like a, on a dollar sale or a 50 cent sale. Um, or maybe I got it for free as a promo comic. But Canon Home Video actually put out a Canon Video comic, collector's edition comic, called Cyborg, the star of Bloodsport in Cyborg. And it says, adapted from the hit film Cyborg, coming to video stores September 20th. And it was essentially a comic book adaptation that told the story up to the point where Gibson and Fender face off in the film. So you kind of have to, it says in the last page, it says to experience the spectacular climax of this epic odyssey into the future. Watch for the premiere of Cyborg starring Jean-Claude Van Damme on video cassette available at video outlets nationwide beginning September 20th. So it was a promo comic to hype people up for the video home video release of the film. It's it, it, it writing wise, it's essentially the the movie, just kind of like your typical like one shot movie adaptation of like okay, shot for shot for shot, like little bits and pieces, kind of telling us the movie with trying to show it through the art. The art is really bad. It's it's like you know, there's kind of a likeness to some of these things. I don't know who did it. There's no real credits. The cover has Van Cleve and Van and Von Scholl in the signature, but I, I don't know who the names are. Um, and the ads inside the comic are all for future, um, Canon Hope video releases and stuff like that. And I'll get to those in a second. So, you know, you've got this really kind of poorly drawn comic, but as you, as you flip through it, you also have some kind of publicity materials. Um, you have a profile page of the stars. So it's called the good, the bad, and the lovely backstage with the cast of cyborg. So you see Jean-Claude Van Damme, you have a get a rundown of his career, Dale Haddon's career, Vincent Klein's career. It's where, by the way, I learned how to pronounce his name because it says Vincent Klein, say Klein. He is a surfboarding and skateboarding champion. And then Deborah Richter, Rolf Mueller, and uh, Blaze Long, who were uh, some of the other cast members. You flip through it some more, you have a little bit of how the weapons in the film were made and they actually talk about like one of the things I was talking about, like some of the captions here of society and post Armageddon would be low on technology, but high on violence. Um, weapons of the distant and not too distant past would blend together out of necessity. Though carefully choreographed fight scenes should cause their share of scrapes and bruises as they show um, some stills from the film and get a little bit into like, you know, how these things were put together. Flipping through some more, we have a little bit of production notes and then how things were put together. A conversation interview with director Albert Pune. You have a, like, almost like you could tear this out and put it on your wall, Tiger Beat sort of picture of Van Damme holding a gun. Um, another one with uh, Vincent Klein, uh, kind of a pinup page photograph. And then finally, a uh, people actually wrote letters to the uh movie and and had their um (laughs) 
had their opinions published, like in a letter column. It's really interesting. And the ads are uh, for other Canon video releases. So there's one that the first one says, Too Tough, now available in video cassettes, Bron- Bronson's Kinjite Forbidden Subjects, and then uh, American Ninja 3 Blood Hunt. I'm pretty sure I saw that. I know I saw American Ninja 2. I love American Ninja 1. But um, River of Death, a Michael Dudikoff, Robert Vaughn, Donald Pleasance movie. I'd have seen that. I had Michael Dudikoff was one of those actors I really liked in the eighties. My dad really liked in the eighties. I remember that. And I remember another ninja type of movie that wasn't American Ninja with him. I have to track that one down. There's a three, uh, like a triptych of of movies on an ad for a Tommy Lee Jones Virginia Madsen movie called Gotham, uh, Track Tent Twenty Nine featuring Teresa Russell, Gaff, Gary Oldman, and Christopher Lloyd, and Five Corners with Jodie Foster, Tim Robbins, Todd Graff, and John Turturro. A ad for a bunch of horror films from Canon Videos, Crucible of Horror, Beast of the Cellar, Dracula's Last Rites, New Year's Evil, Blood on Satan's Claw, and Schizoid, starring Klaus Kinski. Um, there actually is, funny enough, there's a comic book convention ad, those Great Eastern comic book ads that you would see. There's, so that's a legit comic book ad here. And... Um, you have an ad for canon movie tales like fairy tale things, Beauty and the Beast, Puss in Boots. The, the printing on this is a couple of pages of words that obviously looks like something didn't line up. And then the Powwow Highway, which was called, which the Seattle Times called the Native American Rain Man. And then on the back, uh, an, a canon video ad for Cyborg, which notes that Jean-Claude Dan Damme was in Predator. And this was something that uh, I was like, when I was a kid, I was like, wait, he's in Predator? And there's, you know, I'd seen Predator more times than I could probably count at that point. Um, and it wasn't until years later is that I, I knew that or learned that he was cast as the Predator. But early into pre-production, it just didn't work out. He was complaining about how the, the suit made him sick. He couldn't move in it. They decided to go with Kevin uh, Kevin Peter Hall, who was much more bigger and imposing and, and what you got and made him, uh, made the alien more like, you know, didn't really have any lines and things like that. But I guess because Van Damme had been cast in the movie, Cannon thought, oh, we'll put Predator in there. So um, I don't think that any footage of, Van Damme and the Predator costume exists, by the way, not in the sort of Eric Stoltz shot 15 minutes or so of Back to the Future before they decided to replace him with Michael J. Fox. And you can still see the back of Stoltz's head in one of the scenes in that film sort of way. I think they just, they realized pretty quickly that Van Damme wasn't going to work out. But anyway, I wanted to note that promo comic because like I said, I've had it for a long time at this point and uh, it, it'll it rotates through cheap bins every once in a while and it's just kind of a oddity or curiosity like somebody would put a whole comic together just as a promo for this movie an r-rated movie that and this is clearly aimed at kind of slightly older kids who were too young to see r-rated movies technically but then again late gen x late 80s we were getting into r-rated movies at 12. So Canon knew that. All right. So that does it for Cyborg. Um, I do have some feedback. And what I'm going to do now is take a break. And when I come back, I'll get to that feedback. So stick around. 
Trekker Talk. A fan podcast devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of Trekker Comics by writer and artist Ron Randall. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. Please join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in this excellent retro sci-fi adventure series. Special episodes feature interviews with Ron Randall himself discussing Trekker and his other comics. We hope you'll join us as we travel from the dangerous back streets of New Gallif to the depths of outer space and everywhere in between. Listen at Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit TrekkerTalk.com. Trekker Talk is part of the Rad Adventures Network at RadAdventuresNetwork.com. And I am back with some listener emails and comments. I have some blog post comments I want to get to. Some of them are recent, and some of them are actually kind of older. Every once in a while, I get blog post comments and WordPress emails me to tell me, and I keep meaning to put them into a feedback section on the on the show, which I did with Pop Culture Affidavit 101. Uh, now, one of the blog posts that, and, and this is really interesting to me, one of the blog posts that gets a comment every once in a while is from 2012, nine years ago, right? And this is about the Kevin Bacon, Sean Astin movie, Whitewater Summer. Uh, since September 2020, I've gotten three comments in that post that I, I wanted to read them off, as well as one of my replies. The first one is from Josh Ragan, who said, I just want to say that it's ridiculous how no one online actually lists some of the true filming locations of this movie, including IMDb. They say Quincy, California and the Sierra Nevada Mountains, which has some general truth in regards to the initial driving scenes and a lot of the hiking, mountaineering, etc. But man, how about some specifics? I'll be damned if that's not Highway 70 along the Feather River, quote, near Quincy, California, on the drive to their trailhead for the trip. I've driven that stretch of highway many times, and I swear that's it. It would just be nice to get some confirmation online. I'd just like to have some more specific info on all filming locations, and it's not listed anywhere. You can't have such a great movie with such great shots of areas in and around the northern Sierra Nevada mountains and not refer to its exact spots. It's disrespectful. I replied back in September, this is a really good point. I'm from the East Coast, but there are definitely times where I can tell where something was shot, but the IMDb details are either vague or non-existent, especially when the film is a little more obscure. You know, people know this film, but it's not Footloose, for example. I will say that IMDb does allow you to edit and add to their information the same way Wikipedia does. It would be pretty cool to see that because sometimes knowing where a movie was filmed makes for a good road trip. Mario Montalvo followed up for us on March 25th, 2021, saying, I just drove this stretch of Highway 70 last week, coincidentally before watching the movie. I can say for sure that it is Highway 70 in the intro. Even the campground they turned into, Silver Lake Campground in Quincy, is still there. I know the production was split between NorCal, Canada, and New Zealand, but I agree. It would be nice to know which scenes were shot where. And of course, I will add here that there's obviously a closing scene, a, a number of scenes that were filmed for the framing device in Central Park in New York. And, and there were a number of scenes filmed in New York. I just, I love getting these. I love getting the people. And and Whitewater Summer is one of those movies that I really want to come back to. I got to find it on, I should find a DVD, Blu-ray or streaming and just watch it again because it's a beautifully shot movie. And, you know, if I hadn't done the blog post nine years ago, I would have 
probably thrown it into the podcast episode rotation. Um, it is because it, it's just it's it it's a movie that I hold in a lot of regard because of the number of times I watched it when I was a kid, and I really love it for that. And I always find it a fun kid forward drama in a way that is. Um, uh, I don't know. I just it it it's got its tense tense intensity to it, but at the same time, um, it's not fantastical like some of the uh, some of the more '90s kids stuff and things like that. Um, and you always really really enjoyed it. Um, and Vicky P on June 27th of this year, he uh, commented and said that she was looking up some information about the movie Whitewater Summer, and she came across my site, and so she had to add her two cents. Now, as a 75-year-old woman, this is still one of my favorite movies. Sean Astin was adorable and Kevin Bacon, well, what can I say? His career has been incredible and Sean has made it big as well. I fell in love with this film along with the music in it. I bet I've seen Whitewater Summer more than 100 times and will continue watching wherever it's shown. Yeah, the music in the movie, by the way, if you're unfamiliar with Whitewater Summer, is from Bruce Hornsby and the Range's 1986 album, The Way It Is. Um, they play On the Western Skyline and The Wild Frontier, I believe, are two of the songs. There might be a third one in there. And, um, you know, that Bruce Hornsby in the Range album, thank you, Spotify. I listened to it last week all the way through because, you know, I, I knew the that's just the way it is, you know, Mandolin Rain. But honestly, that whole album, really, really good. And, and you know, so I recommend the Bruce Hornsby album as well as Whitewater Summer. All right, so an even older post than that Whitewater Summer post. This one about the Orby. This was a late 80s ball throw toy that I wrote about back in, I think, like 2010, 2011. That got a comment in November 2020 as well. Somebody with the name Just a Girl Born in the Mid-70s. You know, when it came to toy commercials in the 1980s, very few of the toys advertised actually delivered on their promises. The theme song popped into my head this morning, as random memories tend to do. I'm so glad you talked about it and had a commercial for it. And I, too, remember the pogo ball and skip it. And I mentioned those as well. Yeah. Orby, uh, you can go back. and If I remember, I'll link to it in the show notes, the old post. Dude. Orby was this thing. Was like a, it was like a big, happy, fun ball-looking orange ball with a plastic, with a hole in it. You put a plastic thing in the hole, and the end of the, of the plastic kind of tether here were these uh, ribbons, like, you know, that you put on a little kid's bicycle. And what you would do is you would, you would, twirl it around and then throw it kind of like a hammer, like the hammer throw. And the thing would fly like through the air and eventually get stuck in a tree. But, <laughs> but, but I, I just remembered this when I was, it was one of the first centuries I wrote for the blog because I remembered it really, really vividly. And I, and I don't know what happened to ours. I think the, the, the plastic and the ribbons got broken. I think we then used the Orby as kind of ball that's just kind of a ball to toss around. But, uh, but yeah, it's just kind of cool. Again, like these old posts, just every once in a while, I get a comment. For instance, my post last summer about the Nintendo game Bases Loaded. It was called Paste Goes Yard was the name of the post. And K. Jason Link posted, so right now we're in a massive societal lockdown, which means that all of us are sitting at home and trying to find things too. Well, good article. I've recently bought an NES system and bases loaded. My brother and I have played a couple of times and it's still fun. My number one baseball game will always be Baseball Stars. While it was a bit cartoonish, I was always amazed at the ability to create teams and customize and manage. Bases loaded uh, was a distant second. By the way, you're still in contact with your old pal Tom. 
Yes, I am actually. He and I um, message each other every once in a while on Facebook and uh, Instagram and stuff like that. Um, I posted, he shared with me uh, a commercial just the other day about the upcoming 30 for 30 about the 86 mats. Um, when I posted a picture of the gum from the tops baseball pack on Insta last, uh, last month, he said, and I bet there were, you know, so many of this, there were like three of this player in there because, you know, again, so, uh, yeah, we keep in touch. He's down in Atlanta and, and, uh, he's a really good guy. Um, SNK baseball stars. That was a game I really liked, but I, I got that toward the end of my Nintendo time. So I never actually owned it. I would just rent it every once in a while, but I thought the whole create your own team thing was really cool too. It was a really, really good game. Um, Bases Loaded is still number one in my mind, mainly because of the connection I have to it and the number number of times I played it and how much I loved it and still love to play it. So, um, Another comment I got was on an old blog post about the Ciro Cocoa Wheats. Josiah Grayson commented on Cuckoo for Cocoa Wheats, saying his grandfather, who passed away, started eating this when he was a young boy on a farm in North Dakota in the 40s. He always had some when we came to visit and would ship us boxes as well. I don't know exact proportion, but an essential thing is to add its condensed milk. I salt the water before I put the cocoa wheats in then shake them in while stirring after it's boiling. Continue stirring while it thickens and add the condensed milk. I don't know how much cocoa wheats to water. I can feel just when the stirring meets a certain resistance point. Yeah, I've lately been making those for breakfast here and there, and I always mess them up in the microwave where they get clumpy. So I add milk. I don't really, I'm not a big condensed milk fan, but I do add milk, milk, and that does seem to help. But thank you. And then there's one I missed from a few re- years ago. I'm pretty sure I did not put it in my episode 101 comment recap, but I wanted to put it here. Um, back on July 4th, I dug up my Liberty Weekend post from 2011, 10 years ago, and shared it out on the TTF Cantina group and on the and, and reshared it on the Pop Aff page. And there was a comment on there that I missed from 2018. Wes T. Bowker wrote, hey there. Firstly, I realize this article is currently seven years old, but I stumbled upon researching family history. At one point, you mentioned the song Lady of Liberty as performed by Shelley Towns. What brought me to this article is that my late uncle, Charles Blaylock, wrote the song. If you were still alive today, I'm sure you get a kick out of knowing one of his songs that was heard by someone decades later. Thanks for sharing. It means a lot to me. That's really cool. Um, I... uh, Every once in a while, like back on the 101 episode, I told you about how like the sister of the guy who was in the Dr. Pepper commercials commented on my blog post a couple of times. Um, I always love that. It's just, and, and this is just random. It's it's nothing like, you know, noteworthy celebrity type of stuff, but I just, I thought that was really, really cool and I wanted to share it out. All right, so let's get on to comments and messages about podcast episodes recently. For episode 120, I talked to my friend Chris Lightham about Wasted Time, his punk band from back in the 90s. Here are some of the comments I got on the episodes. These are all from former classmates of ours. Um, Pat Mueller said that was great, really well done. Chris, who knew my early eclectic music tastes, would have an influence. By the way, I still love the story of you guys listening to the Green Day soundcheck as part of your big break. Time I look forward to listening to your other podcast. Jessica Shuren said, thanks, Tom. Uh, thanks for sharing. Tom brings back so many memories. 
Um, one of my best friends, Melissa Rosano Rodriguez, said, loved listening to this. And then Jillian David commented on the cover of Chris's album, Wasted Time's album, when it was fun, because the photograph is of her younger brother sitting on a swing set. And she said, Al, LOL, my little brother. Um, honestly, it was a, that was one of the best episodes I've done in recent years. Uh, and it was really, really fun to do. And I really appreciated that so many people enjoyed hearing it. On episode 121, that's Donovan, Morgan, Grant, and I talking about the Judas contract. Aaron Headmoss said, love this run. Um, on episode 122, which is Shag and I talking about Uncanny X-Men, New Teen Titans, Brian Hughes commented on Facebook saying, sharing the scene where Starfire kisses Colossus and says, I am going to point out here for no other reason that it is fun to, that if the roles were reversed here and Colossus were to kiss Starfire, we would be hearing it described as the infamous sexual assault scene today. Okay, I don't think Colossus would have tried to kiss Starfire. It doesn't seem like to be his character. Finally, on episode 123, which aired last month, I have messages on Facebook and comments on Facebook via Michael Bailey, Michael Wagner, and an email from Professor Allen. So here's the message from Mike Bailey. He says, love the trading card episode. It was a lot of fun. Comic images. Now that, by the way, was the Spider-Man set, the Spider-Man pack that I grabbed and, and opened on air. Comic Images was one of the lower-rung trading card companies that started out doing sets on cheaper paper that were just images from the comics. They stepped things up in 1992 and started doing glossier cards, but the coloring sucked. They made the Marvel license for a bit and did sets for Savage Dragon and Youngblood. That Spider-Man set will make your eyes bleed because of the coloring. Yeah, I... Um, those those cards were not particularly, and they all look like it was like, you know, when you try to do a copy of a copy of a copy in an old photocopier and zoomed in to the point where you really can't make things out, it's it was not the uh, best, best spent money, to be honest. Michael Wagner says about baseball cards, I was into Donruss for baseball and hoops for basketball. Um, I actually never owned any basketball cards. I had a, I had, I had a very small hockey card collection, I will tell you, mostly NHL Pro Set, and then had a few football cards. I also, and, I, and, and I'll get back to your, you know, a second, your comment in a second, Michael, I also failed to mention the company Score. That was like a fourth company or fifth company that, that existed. And I had a few cards by Score at one point or another. But again, not enough to say that I amounted, that anything amounted to a collection. I don't think Score really exists. They might have gotten absorbed by another company or bought by Marvel or something at, at one point in the 90s. Anyway, back into... Um, Michael's uh, comment, he says that he was a big fan of the Premier Upper Deck Baseball Series 2. He says, think my card with most valuable was the Michael Jordan baseball card I pulled from a pack. Thinking back now, it was funny. I pulled the card from the pack the card shop employee was watching. When I was leaving, I was putting my cards in my pocket so I could ride my bike home. He freaked out and gave me a hard sleeve because the card had value. Oh, wow, that's a good owner. <laughs> Michael says, I didn't get the freak out. Now I'm, now I'm like, let the kids do what they want. It only has value for you value for too many adult investors flirting to make a quick buck, but have poisoned the fun and entertainment of children's hobbies. That is true. You know, it's funny. Um, I can think of one thing. I don't really have a lot that's like incredibly valuable. Like I said, the most valuable quote, valuable baseball card I own. And I own very few baseball cards, like 
like a handful is a Keith Hernandez rookie card. And it isn't a hard plastic sleeve because I, when I got it, I was like, oh, I'm going to get a hard plastic sleeve for this. Or it might've come in the hard plastic sleeve when it was shipped in eBay. So I kept it there. I was like, okay, that's important. I've got a couple of valuable comics. Like I said, I never got them slabbed, but a few years ago I was buying, um, Scooby-Doo team up and, uh, for my son and they have a issue where, Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy are teaming up with the Scooby gang. And apparently that went big in terms of cost for a Harley Quinn appearance or something like that. And the guy at the comic store was saying like, yeah, that, that thing's going like crazy because people want it for the Harley Quinn thing. This might've been around the time the Suicide Squad movie was coming out. And I said, that's really funny because my kid has it. And it's just sitting in a box in his room and it's probably all beat up, you know, just kind of like, you know, he wanted to read the comics. So, and I had no idea I was buying it. All. It was, it was on my pull list. So you're right there. There's this weird sort of, and I don't want to, I don't want to come down sounding like an asshole here regarding the way people do collect and preserve because you do you, um, the people who speculate and really try to make a living speculating and that they essentially scalp action figures and scalp comics and the way you would scalp tickets. Um, and I probably shouldn't use the word scalp, but try to resell at a higher price. Uh, yeah, dicks. Um, and there's certain, like certain curiosities that I don't, that I do not get, I guess. Like I've seen people who have boxed and slabbed like mint Nintendo games. And I guess I see the value of having like Metroid in its original box in great condition and preserving that. But I have a Metroid cartridge here. I don't have the box, but I have the book and I have the sleeve and everything. And I just play it because I have the Nintendo and stuff. So I don't know. It's, it's weird. It's, it's, you could have a whole, we could have a whole collection about that. Like, you know, we could, sorry, we could have a collection. We could have a whole conversation about that in an episode. Like, you know, how far do you go as a collector and how far do you preserve it? How much do you preserve? And what's the monetary value of doing so? I, I'm going to put a pin in that, Michael, because I think that's a really good conversation to have on a podcast. And I think the guest to do it would be Professor Allen. Anyway, thank you for email. Thank you for the idea that came up as I was responding to it spontaneously here. So Professor Allen did send me an email and with the subject of baseball cards. He says, Tom, love the recent baseball card episode, especially the dramatic live pack openings, dramatic stuff. Collecting is a Middleton thing. My father was a stamp collector until a few years ago when his health was such that he no longer was able to keep collecting. He has slowly begun the divesting process, but I imagine that it is something my sister and I will end up having to finish, hopefully many years from now. My first collection passion was baseball cards just before comic books. Mostly I loved them for the statistics on the back. That's, that was the 70s version of BaseballReference.com, kids. Yeah, I love the stats of the backs of baseball cards. Or maybe Tom is in the age window to have spent quality time with a baseball encyclopedia. What can I say? Baseball stats were my first geekhood. I don't know if I if I saw the baseball encyclopedia, I probably flipped through it. I remember not owning any like stat books and stuff like that myself, but I do remember checking out 
stuff like that from the library or like baseball history books too. I, I really do like reading baseball history um, from the library. So more than likely I came across that sort of stuff in, in the library. But he says, what can I say? The baseball stats are my first geekhood. Yeah. Anyway, I never had more than a shoebox of cards and only one was at all collectible. I had a 1974 Nate Colbert card. What made it unique was that there was a rumor in the offseason that there was a rumor uh, that the Padres would move to Washington. This was posturing to get a better stadium in San Diego, but Tops did not know that. So there are some Colbert cards that show him in a Padres uniform, but identified as playing for Washington with the team name National League. He attached an image, and I will uh, put it on the website. Mine was never in decent condition, and today might possibly sell for five bucks, maybe ten. I sold my entire collection. Shoebox included that Nate Colbert card included for twenty dollars, if that memory serves. That card in top condition, which mine never was, sells for about a hundred bucks. It would have never paid for Am's college. At least there's that. No, Alan, your Turok Dinosaur Hunter number one comics paid for M's college. Um, take care. Enjoy the summer. Keep the good work, Professor Alan of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. And that will do it. Before I go, a couple of things of note, programming notes. First, I am working on getting all of the episodes back onto the feed. Um, True True Freaks launched a new website this year. And that did kind of mess up our feeds a little bit. Right now, you'll be able to listen to the back catalog on the on the website itself. But our podcast feed through Apple Podcasts, etc., only has the episodes that I've put on there, which I, I made sure that all the 2021 episodes were on there, as well as all of Fallen Walls Open Curtains. And my hopes is that by the end of the summer, I'll have the time to just kind of put everything back up the way it should and everything will be back to normal. So if you end up with a bunch of unlistened to episodes in your feed, because they're really old episodes, um, feel free to delete them or re-listen to them, comment on them if you want to. But that's why they will be showing up. Speaking of Fallen Walls, Open Curtains, I'll be back in just a couple of weeks with that. I'll have episode eight of the miniseries. I'm going to be spending that episode looking at the events of June of 1991 through August of 1991, as well as more 80s movies. Uh, this, In this case, U.S.-Soviet conflict movies, Soviet invasion movies like Red Dawn, as well as Rocky IV, the movie that won the Cold War. And finally... This August and September, I'm going to be presenting another six-part miniseries. This one is called 9-11 and Popular Culture. Over the course of those six episodes, which will come out about twice a week in August and early September, I will be looking at the movies, music, comic books, literature, and other items of popular culture that are either about, responding to, or inspired by the events of September 11, 2001. So I hope you are able to come back for all of that. In the meantime, please drop me a line to let me know what you think about this episode or any other episode of the show. And as always, thanks for listening and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. 
If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening and come back next time for more pop culture randomness. Thank you.